afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Insights. Uh, and I'm very pleased indeed today that we have with us Cecilia Malmström, uh, who is a former member of the European Commission and the European Parliament, and she's Peterson Institute for International Economics as a non-resident senior fellow since June of last year. Um, she has devoted the better part of her career to global affairs and international relations and has extensive experience with multilateral institutions. She served as European Commissioner for Trade from 2014 to 2019, as European Commissioner for Home Affairs uh, uh, before that, and she was elected a member of the European Parliament in 1999 and serving until 2006 and was Minister for EU Affairs in the Swedish government from 2006 to 2010. As European Commissioner for Trade, as I know very well, Cecilia represented the European Union in the WTO and other international bodies, but perhaps even more important, she was responsible for negotiating a wide range of bilateral trade agreements and very successfully, including agreements with Canada, Japan, Mexico, Singapore, Vietnam, and more controversially, perhaps, the, the Mercosur countries. Um, we're delighted to have you here, Cecilia. Thanks so much for joining us. The slightly provocative title is uh, of our conversation is Globalization Dead. Um, uh, I see that uh, Martin Wolf in the FT this week was writing that uh, it's not it's not dead, but it may be changing. Um, what, what do you think? Uh, has the pandemic uh, irreversibly changed the, the tendency towards greater globalization? Are we heading back towards more protectionism, less trade? What are the prospects? Well, yes and no. First of all, good afternoon. I'm delighted to be here and it's nice to see you again, David. Uh, well, I think that is the question that lots of people are asking themselves. And I would say that the answer is yes and no. Because on the one hand, of course, the huge globalization that we saw in the 90s with interconnections and the digital connections all, all over and, and the globalization of trade and so on, of course, has halted a bit. It has become different. Uh, but we are still very globalized. I mean, the huge uh, challenges that the world is facing, you know, recovering of, of COVID, health issues, the climate issue now with the war, Russia's war in Ukraine, all that are global issues that we need to solve together. But on the other hand, we see that there are st still disruptions in supply chains, in trade, for instance. There is a tendency of a geopolitization of trade and thereby also uh, that with that comes a more regionalization of, of globalization, I would say. Uh, the US are talking about uh, more friend shoring, meaning that they want to, to, to trade with friendly countries where they, they know that there will not be any issues. Uh, also, the European Union is looking for more strategic autonomy, especially in some medical areas with the medical equipment. But overall, the whole thing is, of course, some technical issues like um, chips and batteries. Um, semiconductors and batteries and of course the dependence that the whole world has right now and will increase with the with the transition to green technology of uh, of rare earth metals and we know that one of the biggest suppliers in the world of these metals uh, is china so of course people and companies and countries are trying to see how can they uh, how can they lessen that dependence? So there's a lot of, of uh, tendencies going up at the same time. On the other hand, the, the trade, and I think Martin Wolf mentioned that as well in his article from the other day, the trade in, in services is bigger than ever, and uh, which has also caused problems because we've seen combustion in, in many ports of the world, in the US, but also in China because of the, the, the lockdowns. Uh, so we have seen container ships standing for, for, for months uh, with... Uh, with uh, 
with goods. Uh, so, so that has created problems. Services are more easier uh, to, 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 to trade. Um, and the digital trade has, of course, increased uh, a lot. But it's, it's all linked together. So it's very difficult to say yes or no on that. It, it, is, it depends. And um, I mean, on one level, it's characterized, as you've said, I mean, I think President Trump probably started the trend of, mm -hmm. of unilateral action in trade. Um, uh, and also undermining the, the role of, of the WTO. Um, but the trend has, has accelerated through the pandemic. And, and as you say, even, even in Europe now, uh, which is the great exponent of, of free trade, uh, people are talking about the need to cultivate more domestically produced goods. President von der Leyen in her speech yesterday specifically mentioned the issue of raw earths and, and, and mineral dependency. On the other hand, uh, we, we read that the European Union is, is going to try and push ahead with, with more trade deals and to, to ratify those which are, are, are pending. How, how, do you, how do you square that circle? Well, I think you have to, to square because overall free trade and you know, regulated trade is a good thing for the world. It has brought enormous benefits and, and uh, you know, it has made the whole world richer in, in many ways. And it also creates liaisons and alliances that are healthy because you don't only trade goods, you trade with other people. And that leads to a lot of good side effects as well. So we must be very careful in not turning into a global protection. That would be extremely bad for, for all of us. And, and for the welfare of our citizens. Uh, but it is understandable that after the pandemic that, that some countries or many countries feel that some basic um, medical equipment, you need to have it handy close to you. That, that is one thing. And then of course, lessening the, the dependence on some, some critical metals come from, from China is, is a logical thought because China is not considered as, as a reliable partner in, in all areas and companies are today forced to make geopolitical decisions, which they were not uh, some, some years ago. And it has shown actually that being quite agile in being more diverse, being more flexible, being more resilient, um, and, and therefore you need to broaden your, your, your map of friends in a way. So, so not, um, of course, you cannot open mines over the, uh, the weekend. There are metals in Europe as well, but it's a long way to, to process that, to get them open. There are environmental considerations. In my country, in Sweden, we have lots of these metals, but there's also indigenous people who live in these areas. It's very sensitive and so on. But for instance, lithium, which is an important metal, exists also in, in Chile. So it makes all the sense that the trade agreement that has been done for quite some time now with Chile, that we ratify that, not only for lithium, but also to broaden uh, that, that uh, relationship. And we've had a, a, an agreement ready with Mexico for quite some time as well, that should now finally be, be, be ratified, I hope. And we just concluded with, we, when I say we, I mean the European Union, uh, with, uh, with New Zealand, which is also, a friend and an ally. So uh, it, it goes together, actually. You do square the circle by, by creating um, a bigger circle of friends, but you should not be too limited. And I think the, the, the talk about friend shoring, just you know, trading with, with very specific friends, it, it risks also to have very bad effects. For instance, I know that many friends who, who are engaged in trade in Africa are very worried about this. Does that mean that they are not considered as friends? I mean, we need to trade much more with Africa to help them to get into the global economy. So there is also a danger and it's a hidden protectionism in, in these kinds of talks. We have been, as the EU, I think, very successful in, in negotiating trade deals, but uh, as you've just alluded to, we're a bit less successful in ratifying. 
Uh, I mean, we're still struggling to ratify the Canada Agreement uh, from some five or six years ago. And then you, you mentioned quite a long list of, 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 of other agreements that are pending. Um, how can we overcome this, this difficulty of ratification, which frequently uh, is blocked in different member states because of, I won't, not because of the central issue of, of, of the trading arrangements, but because of concern about environment or investor state dispute settlement or uh, labor rights and so forth. This, this really has greatly complicated the trade agenda. It has, uh, and this is, um, it's very complicated because the European Union has exclusive competence when it comes to trade. So the Commission, and you were in that position, and I had the privilege to be part of negotiating many of these trade agreements as well. We negotiate on behalf of all the member states, but in the end, the member states and the European Parliament, of course, need to be involved in the process at all steps, but also finally need to give their, their agreement. And uh, But we never start negotiating with the country without haven't received a mandate from member states. So we do it on behalf of, of them. Uh, and that, that is tricky. The Canadian agreement has been enforced for five years now next week, uh, even if it's not formally ratified in all parliament. And it has shown to be a very good agreement. I mean, trade has increased and we have deepened our relationship with Canada, who's a good friend of, of the European Union in so many areas. And we've seen the same effect with, with Singapore and Japan, with Vietnam, it has a bit of a slow starter, but still it has increased uh, trade uh, between us. So, so you know, investing four or five years to negotiate a trade agreement and doing concessions and also forcing our partners to do concession, and then the agreement just lays there for, for, for years, it is not really increasing the credibility of the European Union. So I really hope now that, that Mexico, uh, New Zealand and Chile can finally be, be, be ratified and that we can go on and speed up with, with uh, negotiations with Australia, for instance. Uh, but, but the treaty says that, that member states need to, to, to be involved in the ratification and that is also a democratic viewpoint. Uh, so, so that is a really tricky thing, but, but of course it affects the credibility if, if they just lay there and things change so quickly. So, you know, when you start negotiating an agreement and then five years later, the global scene looks quite different. Um, so, so it's already too long of, of, of a period. And, and then if it goes another two or three years before ratification, of course, it becomes obsolete. So, so the European Union and the member states really need to discuss this because it's, it's not a good thing. It is hindering a lot of economic exchange, which is good for us now, especially recovery after COVID, but it is also affecting the credibility of the European Union in a negative way. Of course, it raises the, the delicate issue of um, the, the choice of the, the, the nature of the agreement, um, because of course we have the judgment of the Court of Justice uh, in the Singapore case, which basically said, uh, if it's purely, if it's 90% trade, then it should be by qualified majority. Yes. Um, and there are only a certain number of elements which would require it to be ratified by unanimity and therefore by all, however many national parliaments, because it's not just, not even 27 parliaments, and if there's a few in Belgium and a few elsewhere, so you end up with, I think, over 30 parliaments having to ratify it. Yes, 41 but, or something, yes, I think, with indeed, all the parliaments indeed. and the, the senates and the higher chambers and so on, yes. But but it's it I mean it it does get quite emotional particularly if I look at the Mercosur case the idea that this could be split into a large chunk which would be by qualified majority and then a smaller bit mainly relating to investment uh, uh, which would be which would require national ratification immediately uh, raises objections from some member states who say the, the the Commission is somehow cheating so it's 
it's it is a very tricky issue. It is indeed, and there's a reluctance both from the member states to sort of push through an agreement with qualified majority because they want to have everybody on board, and also the Commission seeks, and, and you know that you know to have a, a broad. Uh, consensus. Uh, but that is, of course, one way. And the other way is that we started when I was trade commissioner, and it, this has continued and even developed further, and we see the same tendency in the world, that trade agreements today are not only about, you know, getting away with tariffs and, 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 um, and different barriers and standards. These things are important, but it also includes, uh, you know, value-based trade that we should respect uh, you know, we should take into consideration international conventions on environment, on on um, on labor standards, on on human rights when it comes to child labor, for instance. And that has yeah, is a way to also respond to the demands of the consumers and the citizens that they want to know how we trade, not only that we trade. They want to know how this is made. Uh, are the children involved? What is the ecological footprint? And that, of course, is, is something that, that, you know, with some countries, it's easier than with others. With Canada, we have a big consensus on this, and we have even included um, a section on, on trade and gender to, to try to include more women in, in global trade. We have that with New Zealand as well. With Mexico, there is a section on how to use trade to combat corruption, for instance, with public procurement contracts and transparency and so on. So this is, of course, something you, you should include. But then there's always a push, especially from you know European parliaments who live very close to their constituency, to push for, for everything good in the world should be included in the trade agreement. And then it becomes really, really tricky um, to get it, uh, get it done. So, so it's, it's a dilemma. I don't really know how to, to solve. Well, it's, it's, I suppose it's a, a trade-off between, between purely mercantilist concepts and, and, and values. And uh, going back to the issue, you know, we talked about the balance between trade and values. And obviously, we're seeing a growing use of sanctions. And I mean, clearly, you know, in a very spectacular way now, uh, with the, the Russian war in, in, in Ukraine, uh, there has been a very strong sanctions response, probably, I think, one of the strongest sanctions measures we've ever seen, notwithstanding even the sanctions against Iran over the nuclear issue. Um, how do you think this will play into um, global trade, the way companies think about these things? For example, you know, there are suggestions that companies are already asking questions about whether they should review their investments in China in case the they would find there would be a similar uh, situation with China if the situation in, in Taiwan uh, deteriorated. How do you think the the increased use of sanctions might might influence the the, the global trade agenda? Well, it's uh, certainly influenced in, in Russia. Around one thousand Western companies have left Russia, uh, and uh, we don't see many prospects of them coming back until there is either a peace agreement agreed by, by Ukraine or a new regime in, in, in Russia. So, so that has, of course, forced many countries who trade with Russia to sort of you know, change their strategies and diversify and find new markets uh, and so on, because uh, there are the sanctions and then there's the moral pressure that, that they have, uh, which they need to take into consideration. Uh, and I think the sanctions are there to stay and they might even be expanded uh, if, if the bloodshed continues. 
So, so that is a, yet another example of how trade is becoming more geopoliticized. Now, 40 countries around the world are following the, the Western sanctions, but that means that the vast majority are not. Uh, mm -hmm. So that is, of course, something we need to discuss. We need to discuss as Europeans, how come we have failed to engage Africa in, in this, for instance, there are only a handful of African countries who are following the sanctions um, and, and other large parts of the world. Uh, as well, and th this is complicated. I don't want to speculate what happens if China invades Taiwan. Let's hope that will not happen. But, but of course, I mean, this is a you know, this is a template of, of what could happen. Um, but but there is already pressure on American companies, for instance, to redirect production from China, Asia to more closer markets in line of this French-oring uh, new paradigm, for instance. So, so they're definitely feeling it. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think um, that perhaps takes us into the, the broader issue of, of China, uh, China's role in, in, in the global economy, the, 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 the question of whether we are really heading for a clear regionalization of the global economy, where you have um, certainly China, um, the EU and, and the United States, perhaps with closer links between the EU and, and the United States. But of course, the, the, the traditional European view has been rather to put itself in the middle of, of this and try to avoid being forced to choose in, in, in this uh, technological and economic battle. Do you, I, I detect there's a distinct bit of a change in Europe uh, and that people are becoming rather more critical of China these days. Is that your sense too? Yes, absolutely. And the European Union has proposed or even passed through the legislative proce process several uh, new regulations that are not sort of explicitly directed vis-a-vis -vis China, but if you read behind the lines, there is this new investment screening process, there is the anti-coercion instrument, which came about after China boycotted Lithuania when Lithuania opened a Taipei um, representation or, or almost embassy, as, as it was, was labelled. Uh, and now yesterday or this morning came a proposal on, um, on uh, trading goods that has been, been made by forced labor. This is also not only a problem in China, but of course it is very much directed vis-a-vis -vis the Xiangying province and, and the forced the labor camps in, that the Uyghur minority is gained. So, so there is an alignment and there are several other examples uh, as well. So here there is an alignment more vis-a-vis -vis the American position vis-a-vis -vis China, um, but, but also, you know, a general strategic thinking is ongoing in the European Union with a more skeptical or more, more you know, uh, tougher stand vis-a-vis -vis China. But on the other hand, we need to trade with China. We need to interact with China. We need China if we want to, if we ever want to achieve the Paris climate goals, we need to work with China. If we want to reform WTO uh, and China is a member of WTO, uh, we need China to, to be in that um, in, in, in that process as well. So, so, so you, you cannot shut yourself totally out of China, the, one of the biggest economies of, of, of the world. But, but of course, there's a pressure also from citizens, political parties, individuals, consumers, that, that we should trade in a fair way. And, and of course, there, there are lots of, of issues there in China when it comes to, to labor rights and human rights and so on. But this is, I, I, I think, really, for me, one of the very challenging questions of the 21st century is whether we can achieve an accommodation with China, which falls short of an outright confrontation, and whether indeed we can 
make that balancing act between continuing to engage with China, to invest with China, to trade with China, to have China engaged on the global agenda, as you say, climate change, or uh, even the Iran deal where China has, has played an important role. And at the same time, pushing back on all the things that we don't agree about. And it's, um, it's not easy to get that balance right, is it? No, you, you're absolutely right. That is the, the one of the key questions for, for the future. And we see, uh, I mean, even if the rhetoric has changed, the actual content of US policy vis-a-vis -vis China has not changed. They are still the, the, the trade war is still there. There are still tariffs and sanctions uh, and so on. And it seems to be, be escalating in this, um, this sort of also technical competition that, that is there apart from all the, the values and the ideology. And that, that, that is a problem because yes, we need to, you know, there, there's a need to, to, to mark vis-a-vis -vis China that some of their uh, behavior is not acceptable and we will not trade with these goods. But on the other hand, you, we do need to engage with them both because it's an important market. We need some of their goods, uh, both to sell and to, to, to import, but also because of the, the global issues where, where China absolutely needs to be a partner. So how, that, that is an enormous challenge. And, uh, and I don't really see where that is landing right now. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, um, and I, I want to come uh, to, to transatlantic relations, which you mentioned, because also you have some experience, as we both did, of, of TTIP. <laughs> we, bear, we bear the scars. Um, but the, it seems to me that one of the challenges is when we talk about um, decoupling from China or being less dependent technologically, China is probably capable of decoupling from us just as easily as we might decouple from or with some difficulty, but that, you know, it has become very self-sufficient in technology. I, I've always tended to think that we should try and engage with China in global standards rather than pursuing the, I mean, if I take 6G, for example, this seems to be an area where perhaps we could sit at the table with the Chinese and say, let's, can we develop a truly global 6G standard rather than seeking to have a, a transatlantic one and a Chinese one. And then of course, we're trying to get different countries around the world to choose our standard rather than the other. But maybe this is a forlorn hope, I, I don't know. Um, Turning to the United States, I mean, you, this is obviously hugely important for, for, for Europe, uh, particularly for Ireland, with the, the amount mm -hmm. of investment and our strong connections to the United States. Um, the disappearance of President Trump and the arrival of President Biden was greeted, rightly, I think, with great enthusiasm, and a, a lot has changed. I, I wouldn't like to think how we would manage the Ukraine crisis with President Trump, Trump in the White House. On the other hand, as you say, on trade, uh, there is not so much movement. and. Um, mm -hmm. Can we ever get back to a, a more constructive trading uh, environment with the United States, or, or has the, the the mood of America first really uh, is it deeply ingrained at this point? Well, for the moment, I, I think there are no openings to do grand things. President Biden and his administration have been very clear that they do not seek to engage in market access uh, agreements at all, not with Europe and not with Asia. <laughs> They, they have different uh, IPEF and, and so with, with Asia, but it's more about standards and semiconductors and, and value chains in, in a broader sense, and also a lot of security, of course. Uh, and with Europe, we have this new trade and tech council uh, that, that had its first meeting in uh, May, I think. Uh, and that, that's, of course, a, uh, well, no, it was in anyway, it ha has only existed for, for, for some months. And that is the first step, I think, to, to rebuild trust, because that trust was a lot damaged during the former administration. 
but it's not a trade agreement. It is, uh, it consists of several working groups on, on lots of important issues, standards, green technology. Now there's a lot of, of cooperation on, on, on the supervision and monitoring of, of the sanctions in Ukraine. There is on semiconductors, there is uh, on, on green technology. I mean, there, there are important things. Uh, and I think that that can you know, be very hands-on lead to concrete progress that both partners see are, are, are important for their economy and for their alliance, but is not going to open, you know, we already trade with the US on, on every second, but, but there are still, still um, things that, that could improve. But a new free trade agreement or a new TTIP, I don't see that coming uh, soon. But on the other hand, there is a growing criticism within the US as well, because the rest of the world are doing trade agreements. We have in the European Union quite a lot of agreement, which gives us preferential access to important markets. In, the, in Asia, their globalization is not stalled. They have um, uh, an army of different trade agreements and bilateral and regional agreements with, with lots of, of acronyms, RCEP and CPTPP and DIPA, which is the, the e-commerce agreement with, with Chile, New Zealand, um, Singapore, and I think Canada and, and South Korea will be joining as well. UK has applied. So, so there's a lot of activity going on there. So of course the US, it is a big important market in itself, but they risk to, to lose out uh, a lot. And if you want to protect American workers, if you put tariffs on, on, on lots of, of imports and things, ordinary things that ordinary people need become much more expensive. And that is what we see in the US now as well. But I, I don't see the prospects of a new TTIP coming uh, even on medium term. It's a pity because it's, you know, we should have a trade agreement between the two biggest trading partners in the world. But let's try to build on some concrete issues, on standards, on, on trust building, on technology, and so on, and see where we take it from there. I suppose TTIP fell victim to the fact that, indeed, we, we, we do so much trade and investment without any agreement with the United States that, by definition, the key issues to be resolved in, in, in any negotiation were the most difficult, were the ones where precisely we couldn't find agreement. And that made it, I think, very, very difficult uh, for, for, for both sides, apart from the, the, the you know, very complicated argument that was triggered about uh, investor state dispute settlement, which, you know, was something I think most of us had never heard of until, until the <laughs> negotiations started and we suddenly discovered this was a, a whole a whole different world. And, and indeed, it, it continues to pose problems uh, in, in, in other trade, trade, trade deals. It is a, you were heavily involved in the discussions on, 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 on trying to find a multilateral solution to that. Absolutely. I mean, ISDS, I mean, uh, until six years ago, if you Googled it, the first thing that came up was the International Shepherd Dog Society, uh, which had absolutely nothing to do with investment. It became a really tricky issue and we had lots of demonstrations in the European Union. We tried to reform it on a bilateral basis. We have a much more open and modern agreement uh, on a dispute settlement with Canada and with, with Singapore, with Chile, and we are also working. And it, it is moving forward on, on an international level to create a multinational investment court where, where the whole United Nations is engaged. But these things take time um, and, and hopefully we will land because there's a growing criticism in so many countries all over the world on these old agreements. But um, that, and that was, of course, not the only problem between the US and, and, and the EU, but, but it, it was one of the stumbling blocks, yes. Well, of course, agriculture was also, as we, as we know, a, a difficult subject uh, as well. 
always yeah. in the European Union <laughs> and also the, in the US, of course, big well, yes, yeah, of yeah, agriculture, yeah. protected markets and, and so on. This is always tricky. And the fact that we set standards in a totally different way. We have European Commission setting our standards and the European uh, and the United Nations of uh, United States. I'm sorry. United States has this variety of, of thousands of different agencies who work in and nobody wanted to change their system. And it was kind of hard to get the systems go working together i think we could have succeeded with political will but it was indeed very complicated well i, I mean i think you're absolutely right i think people have not sufficiently understood that the, the difference in the way standards are set on both sides of the atlantic and the challenge that poses mm -hmm. for any attempt to harmonize or to to give mutual recognition of those standards uh, and i'm i'm going following with interest what what the the trade and technology council will do to address that because they are trying to address the issue of standards yeah. and at least identify if not necessarily retrofitting to existing standards but at least in terms of developing new standards in some of the emerging technologies mm -hmm. can we arrive at, at at agreement on 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 joint standards which then can be uh, approved within our respective systems but um it, it's it's it is the systems are so very different that it is very challenging and, and each side is deeply attached to its own system right and convinced that it's the best one um can we turn now if i may you have a, a wonderful backdrop photograph there of uh, of the coast of, of sweden uh, uh, and i know you're you're in uh, gothenburg um We've been watching, uh, those of us in Europe and around the world, the results of the, the Swedish elections and, and wondering what this holds for, for Sweden, for Sweden's role in Europe. Um, obviously, uh, after the war in, 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 in Ukraine, the, the, the fact that uh, Finland and Sweden both joined NATO was joined it so rapidly uh, seemed a remarkable turnaround for those of us who listened to the debates in Sweden about neutrality. Um, but more generally, I mean, this is a, it was a, a knife edge election. I mean, I think we only really got the results uh, last night or yesterday, as I understand. But indeed, the result is a, a, a defeat, so to speak, for the for the for the actual government who have stepped down in accordance with your constitution. And uh, and now there will be an attempt to form a new government. For those of us looking from the outside, what 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 should we expect from this new political situation in Sweden, particularly about issues of globalization, trade, and uh, technology? Well, it will not affect the NATO process. All parties uh, who would possibly be involved in the new government are in favor of NATO. So that process goes on. Right now we have some issues with, with the Turkish government, but, but, but that, that is something that, that is handled uh, on, on a big national consensus. So there's a strong, and also the political, the support for this among the population is very strong that we should join NATO, which is a remarkable change just in only a few months, but here we are. Um, it's because of, the, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, and we are very close uh, to, to the border and Finland even, even more. Uh, we have a proportionate system in, in Sweden and no party uh, is as big as 50%, so we always need to make coalitions. And there's a traditional sort of left center block and a traditional center right block. <laughs> Uh, and now we have, in, in, in addition, we have been seeing the last week, the last years, uh, a growing party on the extreme right, the Sweden Democrats, which is a, a extreme anti-immigration party. It received 20%. And it will now try, and it was, it, it is the second biggest party in Sweden after the Social Democrats who have now stepped down. So there is a thin majority for the other side, three mandates only in the parliament. So it will be, uh, a majority government if, if they succeed but still with the weak 
support. So what is happening now is that the leader of the uh, Conservative Party, Mr. Ulf Kristersson, is trying to, to form a government and talks are ongoing and, and they are you know, outside the limelight right now because of course they are talking. The probable outcome is that he will become prime minister, leading a government including his moderate party, the third party of Sweden, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals. And then the Sweden Democrats will support this coalition. They will not enter into government. They will support it, but of course, in exchange of a long list of demands. Uh, they are, I don't think they will, will challenge uh, NATO or the actual Ukraine politics on a long term. If it really drags on, you could hear voices there because they have uh, ties with Putin, as many other right-wing extremists have in Europe as well. Uh, they are not pro-European. So that will be an issue. Sweden takes over the, the, the EU presidency in January, which is worrying. Uh, and they, they, they blame all the problems of the world on immigrants. Uh, so uh, of course, that it, it will be difficult to get uh, agreement with, with them. But that's probably the, the outcome. So, but, but the other parties are pro-European and very committed. Um, and of course, very committed to, to the sanctions as well. So we will see a lot of tensions inside that, that government and on, on issues when it comes to migration, when it comes to, to criminality, crimes, uh, tougher sentences, uh, new ways for the police to work. But there, there seems to be a rather agreement. We had lots of problems of shootings and violence in the suburbs of Sweden. So they will have to be changed as well. So we'll see. Uh, it will probably take a couple of weeks, um, and um, but that's the, the likely out outcome. Well, and of course, we watch with great interest what will happen in, in Italy on the, the 25th, mm, uh, where exactly. the, the polls mm. seem to predict also a, a move to the right. I suppose a, a final question, since we've talked about globalization and trade. Do you, to what ex Some people would say that globalization has laid the groundwork for this shift to the right and, and more populism. Obviously, immigration is, 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 a, is a touchstone issue in that debate too, but others would say that indeed uh, it is globalization, it is excessive trade liberalization that has bred this sense of uh, um, dispossession among certain sections of the population which has voted for Trump, which has voted for right-wing parties. Do you think there's any truth in that? Well, we certainly see a decline of democracy all over the world. Uh, and I mean, fewer people today live in democracies than 20 years ago, which is very worrying. We can talk about Brazil and Philippines and other countries as well. Um, I mean, it, it is clear that globalization and trade has solved many problems. I mean, thanks to globalization, international co cooperation, we, we, the world managed to, to, to produce vaccines in record time to vaccinate millions and millions of people all over the world. And that was international cooperation from many nationalities. And of course, I mean, the, the, the deals that we have made on, on how to fight climate change and so on are because of globalization, international cooperation. But I think many people feel left out of the very quick globalization, also the, te the technical and the digital transformation that, that ha has happened and that many young people are, are comfortable with, but not everybody. And national leaders have failed to sort of disperse the benefits of globalization and the benefits of, of, of trade in a way that, that you know, many people feel that they have not benefited from it. So it's a, it's a, it's a leadership there, that there is a, a crisis in the global governance of global, globalization. The United Nations is not delivering. Um, WTO is very weak, G7, G20, you know, it's not what it 
could should be. So, so, so this is also an issue we really need to, to, to look at. How do we strengthen international organizations and the global order? And of course, Russia invading Ukraine is a big blow to the international order as we knew it. It was fragile, but it's still there. Absolutely. Yes. Cecilia Malmstrom, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to bring this to a close, but I have to just mention uh, the major international uh, energy conference that we're holding with the Electricity Supply Board here uh, on the 10th of October with um, the Energy Citizen at its heart. The conference called Accelerate the Transition to Net Zero will showcase a vision for resilient, inclusive and sustainable future for all people as our journey to net zero continues. So please put that in your diaries uh, the, the 10th of October, a very important uh, energy conference between the IIA and, and, and the ESB. Cecilia, thank you very much. Uh, and I look forward to, to seeing you again in person one of these days. Thank you.